Good morning. We're going to read Paul's letter to Philemon again this week. So please follow along on the screens or in your Bible. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, to our, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and our, our keepus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that sharing of your faith may become effective and for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been re refreshed through you. According, accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you that to do whatever is required. Yet for love's, sakes, love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also in, for Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become in, the, in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that you, your goodness might not be in compulsion, but your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh in my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will graciously be give, given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks, Jim. Well, good morning, friends. My name is John. I'm the pastor here at Wingfoot, and uh, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. If you are here and you're new or relatively new with us, uh, checking us out, we are all about uh, meeting you right where you are. Uh, and as a church, we're not afraid to ask big questions uh, and difficult questions and challenging questions because we believe that in asking those big questions of life that we're able to find the truth, that we're able to find good answers to the problems that we're facing 
in life. In fact, that's really the motivation and the underlying idea behind this uh, series that we've been walking through over the past now four weeks. The series called This Changes Everything. Uh, we've been wrestling with this big question, and that's this question of what good is Christianity? What good is Christianity to a world that's divided, to a world that is uh, arguing, to a world that is trying to figure out what unity looks like? What does Christianity have to offer to those big challenges? Uh, because if you ask people who aren't Christians what good Christianity is, they might not have a lot of good answers. They might say that Christianity is actually part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And so we have been wrestling with this question through the letter that Jim just read, the letter to Philemon, this letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to two guys who are at very opposite ends of every spectrum you could imagine. Opposite ends of the economic spectrum, opposite ends of the social spectrum, two guys who had very different lives. And yet Paul writes this letter to bring to their relationship healing and reconciliation and unity. And so we've been looking at this letter over the past now four weeks and asking this question, what good is Christianity? How does it have to deal with the, the challenges that we face? And really, what do we have to do? What kind of place do we have to become in order to be a good news kind of community? A community that's actually good news to these questions and challenges that the world is facing. And so we've looked now at three transformations that we have to uh, understand, to come to accept, to become this kind of place. So today we're going to look at the last of these four. But just to recap, if you haven't been here the past couple weeks, we talked about moving from being me-centered people to we-centered people. Understanding that we actually belong to one another. It's not just all about me, but we're part of something bigger. We looked at the transformation from categories to community, how the way of Jesus actually challenges the definitions of worth and value that the world places on people. And instead, because of Jesus and what he has done, we are invited into a community of unity in the midst of diversity. Last week, we looked at the question of power. What does it mean to have power? How do we use power, not for ourselves, but in the way of Jesus, which is using power for the sake of those who have none, which is a radically different way of looking at power than the world around us. So today we're going to look at the last transformation uh, that we can see in the letter to Philemon that we need to embrace, and that's this transformation from part of life to all of life, from part of life to all of life. Now here's what I mean by part of life. Uh, we tend to walk through our week, walk through our life, sharing only parts of ourselves with people. And the parts of ourselves that we share with people are usually dependent on our, on our relationship with them, our responsibilities, and, and whatever it is that we're doing at the time. And so we only share part of ourselves with the people that are around us. For example, when you go to work, there is a work self that you share at work. A certain parts of your life that you share with your coworkers, certain uh, maybe attitudes or actions that you take at work that you wouldn't take anywhere else. There's a work self that you share. Uh, you interact with your boss in a particular kind of way. Right? You, you tackle work differently at work maybe than the chores that you have at home. Right? There's a different work self that you have when you're working. But then when 5 p.m. comes or when 7 a.m. comes if you're coming off the night shift, then you go home, you leave your work self there, and then you put on your home self, your family self. And so you act a little bit differently at, when you're at home than when you're with uh, your coworkers when you're at work. So you interact with your kids in a particular kind of way. Maybe your attitude is a little bit different when you're home. Hopefully your relationship with your spouse is different than your relationship with your boss. You're at home and you're doing things a little bit differently. Maybe there's a little bit more intimacy at home. You share more of yourself there. But then you also have, we could say, a friend self, who you are when you're hanging out with your friends, when you're with the guys or with the girls. You're sharing a different part of yourself with them. Maybe you tell different jokes than you tell at home. Maybe you share more with them than you share at work, and so you have a friend self that you share with the people 
that you call your friends. And so we do this in every aspect of our life. We share only part of ourselves with people around us. We could do this in a lot of different ways. Maybe there's a financial self, and that's you making your decisions about money and debt and all these kinds of things. You have different versions of yourself that you share with the people that are around you. And we actually like doing this. We do this because it helps us sort of manage expectations and manage the relationships around us. And so we only share so much with our coworkers, maybe because we overshared once, and so we realize that there's a certain boundary there that people don't want to see. We only share parts of ourselves because it helps us tailor this picture, this image that we have with our coworkers or with our family or with our friends. And so we like doing this, but the problem is really two things. The one problem is this, that you'll never really know people. And they'll never really know you if you're only sharing part of yourself. You'll never really know people, and and they'll never really know you because you're always kind of presenting a version of yourself that you want them to see. You're kind of presenting a mask of who you are. And so beneath the surface, there's other stuff that you're not sharing with them. We could say you even have a secret self, a secret self that you're not sharing with people. And in that secret self are the things that you don't want to talk about, things that you don't want people asking questions about, the things that you don't share with people. And so the problem is we end up with very shallow relationships. We're just sharing parts of ourselves with people, and there's a whole part of my life, a whole part of my heart and my attitude that nobody gets to see. And so I end up feeling sometimes lonely, sometimes unknown, sometimes isolated when we're only sharing part of ourselves. But the other problem is this, that when we're only sharing part of ourselves, that secret part of ourselves that we don't share, in that secret part of ourselves can start to grow some what we call hypocrisy, right? Where that's where sin and struggle starts to fester underneath the surface. And we don't want people to see it, so we keep it hidden. But, but beneath that, in this secret place in our life, there's this struggle or these doubts or this sin that's just kind of growing underneath the surface. And nobody sees it, but we know it's there, and so we're desperately trying to protect it. All the while, we're feeling really alone. And then what happens is when that comes out, when that secret sin, that secret self comes out, the people around us who knew us at work or knew us at home or knew us as our friends, they look at us and say, who is that guy? I never would have imagined that he would do that because we had only been sharing part of ourselves with people. You know, Jesus actually coined the term hypocrite. He's the one who really made that term popular. He, was, he used it about religious people in particular. He called out religious people for being what he called hypocrites, which is that they had part of their selves looked really good and shiny and moral and upright. But beneath the surface, they had this secret self that was full of greed and lust and hypocrisy. And so he called them hypocrites. And that's what tends to happen when we only share part of our lives with people is in the secret part of our lives that we don't want to share, that we don't want anybody to look at. Sin and struggle and hypocrisy can fester. And then when it comes out, the people around you are shocked. They're surprised. They say, I could never believe he could do that. But he did. See, the Christian community has actually been wrestling with this the past couple weeks. There was a really well-known, really world-famous Christian author, speaker, lecturer. He talked at, like, Harvard and Yale, all the top schools. He would go around the world advocating for the cause of Jesus. He had this really public uh, face, this really public persona, and he died a few years ago. And just recently, uh, accusations and allegations came out, and there was an investigation. They found that this guy had part of his life that was public, charismatic ministry. But he had a secret self that was full of abuse and manipulation. And the people who were closest to him, they said in the 
fallout of all of this, that's not the guy that we knew. But it was. Because he was only sharing part of himself. It was this whole secret self that no one got to see that was off limits. He protected. He didn't want anyone in there. And as a result, his reputation, this ministry has just crumbled very, very publicly. I want you to see that this tendency that we have to share part of ourselves and the, the problem with sin and hypocrisy, Philemon actually challenged this head on. That the letter to Philemon actually confronts us in this tendency that we have to share only part of ourselves. Right, so to remind you of the context of Philemon, Philemon is the wealthy homeowner, the one who has this church that meets in his house. And Philemon at one point owned Onesimus as a slave. Onesimus ran away. He took something from Philemon, and he ends up in prison with Paul, who's a leader in the church. Paul leads Onesimus to faith in Jesus and writes this letter, gives it to Onesimus, and tells Onesimus to go back to Philemon. And in this letter, Paul is advocating for reconciliation, which is where two people at odds come back together. He's advocating for reconciliation on behalf of Onesimus. And so I want you to just put your, like, Philemon hat on. You didn't realize you had a Philemon hat. Put your Philemon hat on and think about life through Philemon's lens, through his life. He gets this letter from Paul. And notice it's addressed to the whole church. So it's not just Philemon uh, reading this privately. It's addressed to the whole church. Philemon gets this letter, and think about the parts of himself that he could put into this. He could say, Paul, this is part of just my economic self, right? Onesimus was property. I bought him. And so you really don't have any business in this part of my life. This is just my dealing with my finances. This is part of my life, so thank you for your advice, Paul, but this is mine to deal with. He could look at this through the household part of his life, the home part of his life. He could say, Onesimus worked for me in my house, and so, Paul, I appreciate the advice, but let me handle things within my own four walls. This is kind of off limits for you. This is part of my private self. I'm going to deal with this. Or he could even say, Paul, this is, you know, this is kind of a personal matter between me and Onesimus. You know, I appreciate that you have some input on here, but you know, just let me and him hash this out. Let me and him deal with this, Paul. So thanks for your advice, but this is just between us. We do that all the time, too. We kind of put walls around parts of our life and say, no, you, you can't really speak into this. But what Paul is saying to Philemon, what he's challenging him and challenging us on is this tendency that we have to just share part of our life. And so when Paul writes this letter to Philemon, he doesn't write it just to him. He invites the whole church in on this relationship, in on the navigating the dynamics of what's happening here. That's why you notice in the first two verses, there's lots of names listed. And in the last two verses, there's lots of names listed because Paul is inviting Philemon to share not just part of his life, but to share all of his life. To allow all of his life to be open and on the table with the people that are around him. But why does that matter so much to Paul? Why would that matter so much to the church? I mean, wouldn't the people around him say, hey, Paul, this is kind of a private issue too. Like, let's back off. We don't need to bring that drama here into this space. Why is it that it matters so much to them? You see, the early Christians, when they summarized what it meant to be a Christian, when they communicated what it meant to believe in Jesus, they used a three-word phrase all of the time. And that three-word phrase was this, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. King. This is how they communicated what Jesus had accomplished, what he was all about, what it meant to follow Jesus. And I want you to actually see this in the letter to Colossians. It's just a few letters back, but actually Colossians probably arrived to this church with this letter to Philemon. Because Colossians, Paul tells us, was actually delivered by Onesimus. 
And so this church probably got Colossians and Philemon at the same time. They probably had either just read Colossians and now were reading Philemon or had just read Philemon and then were reading Colossians together. And so Paul is sharing these two realities, these two beliefs at the same time, the letter to Colossians and the letter to Philemon. In Colossians 1, Paul is communicating to this same church what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus. And in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 17, this is how Paul explains Jesus to them. He says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, or that in everything he might be first. This is how Paul understands Jesus. This is how Paul is communicating Jesus to this church, that Jesus is not just your personal king. He is king over the universe. Everything visible and invisible, everyone who has power, Jesus is above that. Jesus is king. And so if Jesus is king, all of your life is on the table. All of your life is open for him to speak into, open for him to challenge, open for him to communicate something about, that all of your life is on the table. You see, what I think tends to happen for us is when we just share part of our lives, we just share part of our lives, we have sort of a, a religious or spiritual part of ourselves. There's a religious or spiritual part of our life. It's active right now. This morning, you're in church. You're gathered in a religious space. And so you could look, look at your life and just say, this is the religious or spiritual part of my life. And then what tends to happen is then we make Jesus the king of our religious spiritual life. But everything else is kind of off limits. Everything else is kind of off limits. It's kind of like, you know that cartoon where there's, uh, like a cartoon is trying to make a decision and like an angel pops up on one shoulder and a devil pops up on one shoulder? Right? It's kind of like when we just share part of our life, we say Jesus is just my personal savior, my personal private savior. It's like we have a little shoulder Jesus. Right? That Jesus is just there kind of inspiring me, just there to encourage me with a Bible verse just there to help me feel better about myself, to maybe help me get over some habits that I have, that he's just kind of there to be my personal private savior, my personal private Jesus, who's just inspiring me and encouraging me, telling me a verse to help me get through my day, to help me feel better about myself. Maybe we'll allow him to speak into 10% of my financial life. We'll ask him to give us some advice about how we raise our kids or how we're, we're in our marriage. But for the most part, we say, Jesus, you're my personal private Jesus. And so everything else about my life I am in control of. I am in charge of. Well, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is king of everything, which means everything is on the table for him to speak into, for him to challenge, for him to change. That if Jesus is king, then all of my life is on the table. So I want you to look at Paul's request to Philemon then in the letter to Philemon. And I want you to see how this plays out in verses 15 through 18, Paul is making like the core ask he's making here. He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
So notice what Paul says when he's making this request to Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. He says, as a brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Because you see, if he doesn't say that, and if Philemon doesn't get this idea that all of his life is on the table, that Jesus isn't just his personal shoulder Jesus, that Jesus is king over everything, Philemon could look at Onesimus and say, you are my spiritual brother in Jesus, but you're my slave for the rest of your life. That we have this spiritual relationship, yeah, and when we get to heaven when we die, we're going to be equals, we're going to worship Jesus, it's going to be great, but between now and then, scrub my floors. Between now and then, do whatever I want. Between now and then, you are in your place. But Paul says, receive him as a brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, if Jesus is king, not just of your personal, private, spiritual life, it should change not just your spiritual relationship with Onesimus, it should change the physical reality of your relationship. It should change the economics of your home. It should change how you arrange your affairs, because if Jesus is king, then everything has to be reoriented and changed to reflect what he wants. If Jesus is king, all of your life is on the table. Not just a personal, private shoulder, Jesus, inspiring you to get through your day, but Jesus is king, inviting us to arrange all of our life around what he wants. In the context of this community where Jesus is king. You see, if you're here or if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, honestly, sometimes I think the way that we present Christianity is too small. That we sometimes present Christianity or you hear Christianity as kind of a personal, private shoulder, Jesus kind of Christianity. That if you follow Jesus, he will make you happy. If you follow Jesus, he will bring you fulfillment. If you follow him, he will inspire you. He'll help you get over your issues. He'll be your own personal, private shoulder, Jesus. But Paul is saying Jesus is king. And that's a fact. He's not saying Jesus is uh, maybe king or probably king. He's saying Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, then a response is required. Then a response is required is required that there are those who are in line with his kingdom and those who aren't. And you see, when we present just a personal, private, individual Jesus, it's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it kind of situation. It's like, well, that might work for me or it might not work for me. But if Jesus is king over everything, then at some point or another, you're going to have to make a decision. At some point or another, you're going to have to make a decision. And so if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to realize that that is the message of Christianity, that Jesus is king over everything. And he is inviting you to join him in his kingdom, to acknowledge his authority, to trust him, and to follow him as king of your life, along with other people who have done the same. You see, this is Christianity with teeth. This is Christianity with power, because Jesus is king of everything. He even said thrones and dominions, that he is in charge of it all. And so one day or another, you're going to have to acknowledge that. Not a personal, private shoulder, Jesus, but Jesus is king of the universe. And that changes everything. And he's inviting you to join him in his kingdom. But for those of us who follow Jesus, who believe in this Jesus, who trust in this Jesus, who is king, what does it take for us to move from part of life people with our private shoulder, Jesus, to all of life people following out the kingdom of Jesus? just have three words for you to kind of capture what it takes for us to move from part-of-life people to an all-of-life community where everything is on the table. The first word is this, commitment. Commitment. 
that becoming an all-of-life person and an all-of-life community doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by snapping a finger. It doesn't happen through small talk. It happens through long amounts of time with each other. And so being committed to one another, being committed to going into those places with each other and sharing our life with other people, that's how this comes about. I think it's important to acknowledge that this is really hard right now. It's really hard to experience community right now. I mean, we're all wearing masks, so I only know what like half of y'all's faces look like. We're all wearing masks, and so there's this distance that we have from each other, literally and like community-wise. Community there's this distance that we have with each other, and, and so we have to fight that battle of knowing each other and sharing all of our life with each other on top of the fact that we're uh, still a new church. And so it's going to take some time, if you've come from another community, another church where you had a lot of history and a lot of time, it's going to take some time to start to feel like the people around you are community, are family. But commitment pushes through those things. and says, this is hard right now, but I know that as we commit to one another, we might get to experience a Philemon and Onesimus kind of church where we're committed to one another in all of life. So commitment is the first word. The second word is hospitality. That's what Paul is inviting uh, Philemon to prepare. He says, prepare a guest room for me. He says, I'm coming to your house. And hospitality is simply this. It's making space for people. It's making space for people. We tend to think of hospitality as like having someone over for dinner, and so you set the table, and maybe you clean the bathroom, and you do those kinds of things. That's uh, some of hospitality. But hospitality is more than that. It's making space for people. You can have someone over to dinner and yet not be hospitable not practice hospitality. Hospitality is making room for people. It doesn't have to just happen over a dinner table, which is really hard right now. It could happen even in the Sunday morning space. As you gather with people here this morning, hospitality is setting aside some time in your morning to be present with somebody, to be present with someone who you're not normally present with, to sit and engage in a conversation, to uh, offer some of your time and your energy and your attention to somebody in this space. A commitment and hospitality, making space for people, you get to know people better and make space for each other in our hearts and our minds and our time and our attention. Even during the week, not just here in this space, but if you live nearby someone that you happen to know here in this room, hospitality could just mean stopping by, dropping by or, or caring for them in some kind of way. Walking by their house when you're walking your dog and waving, this is all part of making space in your life for the people around you. So commitment, hospitality, and the last and the most important is accountability. Accountability. That's what Paul is hinting at here when he says prepare a guest room for me. He's not just saying, hey, I'm just stopping by for a visit. He is hinting to Philemon that what he has asked him to do, the change, the transformation that has to happen if Jesus is king here, is something that he's going to check up on, something that he's going to look into. Accountability is what we fear but also what we want. Right, we fear it because it's like, man, someone is up in my business. Someone is asking me the hard questions. And on the surface, we fear it. But the reality is we want it because that's, that's how we don't feel lonely anymore. That's how we don't feel unknown anymore. As we're sharing the stuff of our life and people are walking with us through it, helping us carry the weight of it, the burden of it. That's what accountability is. It's people understanding and seeing the stuff of your life and helping you rearrange it and reorient it to see Jesus as king in every part of your life. 
So it's going to take commitment. It's going to take hospitality. It's going to take accountability as we seek to become this all of life community, not just a private, sun, private personal part of my life Sunday morning space, but an all of my life kind of place where Jesus is king. You see, the reality is if we look at these characteristics of this church, of what's going on here in the letter, letter to Philemon, talk about a we-centered community where people are living for and with one another. You talk about a, a community that challenges the categories, the defining labels that are placed on people and experiences unity in the midst of diversity because of Jesus. You talk about a community where people who have power are sharing it for the sake of those who are weak in the world. You talk about a community where people aren't just playing a part, but they're sharing all of their life with people. I think if we looked at that and we shared that with anyone who's not a Christian, I think they would see a church like that and say, that's what I want. That's what the world needs. That would be a good news kind of place where people are living for one another, challenging the definitions placed on each other, sharing power and sharing resources and sharing all of their life. That's what Jesus is calling his church to be, to be a place where he is in charge, where he gets to orient everything around his kingdom. And that would be a truly good news kind of church, a good news kind of Christianity. And my prayer for us is that we become that place as we live out Jesus as king. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are king. That is uh, a, a fact. That is a, a claim that is true. That through your death and resurrection, you have become king over everything. God, we confess that we make you too small. We treat you like our personal private shoulder, Jesus, rather than uh, Jesus as king over everything. So God, for the one who's here who maybe uh, was looking at Christianity uh, and just seeing something that didn't have teeth, something that didn't matter, would you help them see that the claim that you are king means that there's a response that's demanded? God, we confess that we share part of our life. We share bits and pieces of our life with each other, to protect ourselves, to keep some things secret. But God, may we be an all-of-life kind of place where all of my life is on the table, where all of the lives of the people around me are on the table, and together we are figuring out what it means to live out this truth that you are king in our work life, in our home life, in our, in our financial life, in our friend life, in all of these aspects of our life, would you be king? Would you reorient and transform the decisions that we make, the attitudes that we have, what we do with our stuff so that all of it will line up with who you are and what your kingdom is all about. We pray all this in your name, King Jesus. Amen.